And uh, the end of Esther 1 says this. This advice pleased the king, and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Uh, Thank you that you are good in all things, at all times, in all circumstances, that your goodness and your character is not determined by what we're facing, uh, but it's set in stone forever, uh, and we can hold on fast to that today and tomorrow. Uh, God, I, I pray for these men and women in this room. Uh, God, I know we all had weeks. Uh, we had ups, we had downs, we had joys, we had sorrows, um, and we all had choices, Uh, where we chose us, we chose others, we chose you, and we probably all are a mixed bag of those things. Um, God, and so as we open your word today, uh, as we look at the story that begins kind of dark, would we find uh, a glimpse of a path that you want to rescue us from and a glimpse of life that you want for us? And if you would, take a moment and pray for yourself and ask the Lord to teach you today. And if you'd be so kind, pray for me uh, that I would speak clearly and be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was at a wedding uh, last night, and uh, as I began to think about the parts of it that I was in, I was in about... Five minutes of a 30-minute wedding, uh, and I was outside the doors with a really cute girl in a uh, dress the rest of the 25 minutes, you know, so that, you know, she would be semi-quiet while, you know, the wedding was going on. Uh, I've never been accused of being quiet, and neither will my daughter. Um, But as I was out there, uh, keeping her entertained and thinking about this morning, I realized there's really two kinds of weddings that, that I've been to in my life. Uh, There are weddings that uh, the bride is the centerpiece of the entire thing, and don't you dare cross her or you won't make it out of the wedding alive, and she is the whole story that that entire moment is about. And there's some truth to that. Like, she's been probably dreaming of this day for many, many years. Don't ruin it. Uh, Then there's another truth. Uh, Growing up uh, in a home that loved Jesus, going to school and making friends with people who loved Jesus, getting invited to a lot of weddings uh, that were about Jesus, saw a very different uh, reality in those weddings. And last night, as, as Jody walked in and, and, and married Nate, and they made their vows between God and their family and friends, and they walked off into a new life together, uh, the whole thing was centered around Jesus. Like, he was the point of the wedding. He was what they were building their life on. And as I thought about that and was walking into Esther chapter 1 this morning, realized, like, that's, that's, that's the text. There's two things we can build our life on. We, we can pursue us and our glory, and we want to be the center of attention, or we can pursue Jesus and his glory, and he be the center of attention. And we can build a life built on us, or we can build a life built on Jesus, and they lead in two very different places, and they take us in two very different places. One gets a TLC show called uh, Bridezilla's, and one uh, gets the Jesus film. 
Uh, But today we are starting in the book of Esther. And Esther, uh, really, if you look at the way it's built out, uh, Esther is a mirror. It's a chiasm of itself. And so this morning we're going to see the beginning of one path. And we really don't get the end of the other path until the very last chapter. And so I'm just going to be honest, today's a little little dreary uh, because the text kind of just leaves us, as you heard, everyone doing what they want and every man being the king of his own castle. Uh, and it doesn't end super hopeful. Uh, and as a pastor and a student of the scriptures, just want to say, just wait till the end of the book. It does get better. Uh, but this morning, we're just going to sit in some darkness. We're going to sit uh, in some depravity. Uh, but before we get there, uh, I've never heard a series over the book of Esther. Uh, and if I had not gone to Bible school, I probably wouldn't tell you, be able to tell you, uh, outside of the introduction of my Bible, where the book of Esther is in the Bible. And so just kind of want to play catch up before we jump into the text this morning. Uh, so Esther is at the end of the Old Testament. Uh, it's one of the very last stories uh, before Chronicles, specifically if you set it up like the, uh, the Bible that Jesus used. And Esther is one of the very last stories of the Old Testament before uh, a period of about 400 years of silence, and then Jesus shows up on the scene. And to get to the end of the Old Testament and get to Esther, we have to talk about three things. We have to talk about exile, and then we have to talk about the book of Esther, Ezra, and then we can talk about the book of Esther. Uh, so Esther uh, finds the people of God uh, still in exile, uh, but after they were told to go home from their exile. Uh, so God, in the Old Testament, sent Israel into exile for disobedience for hundreds of hundreds of years. Uh, the God rescued Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and he put them in a land called Canaan, which is where we get our name from, the promised land, the promise of God. We're trusting him for what's next. And in the land of Canaan, God made a covenant. He made a relationship, a promise with his people that he would be their God and they would be his people. Uh, And then there were some rules of the relationship, just like the wedding I was at. Uh, For better, for worse, for sickness and health, uh, you're my forever. Uh, And there's rules for that relationship. And in this very similar way uh, that Nate and Jody got married last night and made promises and vows, God made promises and vows with Israel to be their God and to be their people. And there was rules to the relationship. And as long as Israel uh, kept to the rules, and didn't cheat on God, proverbially, uh, God would be faithful to them. Uh, But if you've read the Bible, they don't do that over and over and over and over again. And as the story of the Old Testament unfolds, you realize that the people of God don't want God as their God. They want the gods of the nations. They want to look like the other people. And God eventually says, if that's what you want, you can have it. And he sends them into exile to be ruled by the nations. Uh, And the people of God lived in exile for almost 70 years uh, under multiple empires. In the book of Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah find us under the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians. And at the end of the book of Ezra, Israel's exile comes to an end. They're no longer kicked out of their homeland, but they're about to be brought back. So Esther meets us in exile, and then exile brings us to the book of Ezra. And in Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus, uh, the same guy from the book of Daniel, in 539 BC sent exiles uh, from Babylon, from uh, captivity, back home to Jerusalem. The king of the known world said, you can go home. Uh, which uh, I, I, I know just, it doesn't land. Like we've, we've grown up here, uh, we live here, we've not had to move to another country Uh, But you can uh, imagine we've had so many refugees come into the St. Louis region uh, seeking safety, seeking refuge from persecution. And imagine if a new ruler showed up at that place and said, hey, it's safe, you could come home. And all of a sudden, they're free to go back to the place they grew up, 
to the elementary schools that they know, to the neighborhoods that might be in shambles, but the streets that they ran and played on and grew up on. And all of a sudden, they get the chance to no longer be prisoners of war, but to go home and be free citizens. And with this edict to return back to Israel, particularly to Jerusalem, uh, over 40,000 Jews chose to go home, but some families stayed behind. Some families went, we've built a life here. We've, we've kind of begun to understand how to live in this new culture, and uh, we've never lived back home. Like, we don't know home. This has become home to us. And so the families of Esther, the families of Mordecai, and some others stay behind. They, chase, they choose to stay in a foreign country, in a foreign land. And 60 years later, uh, these families that chose to stay, they've got kids, and they have kids, and their families begin to grow And there's this large number of Jews that are remaining in the Persian Empire, particularly in the capital city, which makes sense. 80% of the population lives in major cities. 20% of our population in America lives in rural areas. This Esther happens in a city. Of course, there's more Jews in the city than in the country. It's just how the world works. And then in the middle of the book of Ezra, in chapter 6 and chapter 7, we find the book of Esther. So in the middle of Ezra, chapter 6 and 7, is where the book of Esther takes place. And Esther is set in the Persian Empire, which we'll talk more about here in a bit, uh, but during the reign of King Ahasuerus from, 586 to five, to, from 486 to 465 BC. And just to clarify, I'm probably only going to say this name a few more times, Ahasuerus, uh, and it's more commonly known by his Greek name, Xerxes. And that's way easier for me to say. And I don't end up saying something that I have to regret. Just try to say it five times fast. You'll catch up. Uh, Hashuerus. Uh, but Xerxes is the reign. He's the guy that took on the Spartans and won. Um, well, kind of won. He won a battle. He didn't win the war. And Esther opens up in this with under the reign of a egomaniac in a foreign country with gods that are out the wazoo. And Esther opens up in darkness. Esther doesn't open up in good times. Esther doesn't open up in happy-go-lucky. Esther opens up in a place that seems like there's no hope. Esther opens up 100-plus years later after exile. Esther opens up in enemy territory. Esther opens up with the people of God as a religious minority. We know what that's like. Esther opens up with uh, the people of God being removed from the worship of their God in a world where their God feels absent. That feels a little bit closer to the world that we live in. Uh, I, I heard stories of my grandpa's America. <laughs> I heard memories of my mom and dad's America. And uh, when they tell me those things, I go, that's great, but that's not the world I think we're navigating anymore. Uh, we are the religious minority. And that, that's just the facts. And the people of God have been a religious minority for centuries, and that's okay. And they've thrived and developed. Um, And we're living in a world where sometimes, if we're honest, God feels absent. That we just ask in our honesty of our soul, like, God, what are you doing? Where are you at? Because you say you're good, you say you're loving, you say you're powerful, but the world I'm navigating and living in doesn't look like that's true. And that's the book of Esther. That's where Esther opens up. Uh, And so that's the setting, and now the story of chapter 1 really lays out uh, what we're calling the destructive path. Uh, The story of Esther 1 breaks down into four parts, all centered around Xerxes throwing a party for himself so that people can see just how awesome he thinks that he is. And in Esther 1, we see Xerxes do four things. We see Xerxes display his own glory. We see Xerxes demand his own glory. 
We see Xerxes be denied his own glory, and then we see Xerxes decree his own glory. Display, demand, denied, decreed. And that's the story of Esther 1. So first, Xerxes displays his own glory. One, chapter 1 opens up. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, the known world, uh, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and his servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Did you catch it? The dude takes tax dollars and throws a six-month-long party for all the important people to show up to his big house and go, yes, you are awesome. Look at all the glory and splendor and riches that you are. You are the greatest human that has ever lived. You're wonderful. We're so much beneath you. You're incredible. For six months, he throws a me-fest of look how great I am. With the money that you gave him, by the way. The army, the officials, the nobles, the governors, the important, the powerful people of the kingdom, just to show off how great he thinks he is. Xerxes throws a party just to display his own glory. The whole point was for them to come and look at how great he is. This isn't about celebrating a military victory. This isn't about celebrating a wedding. This is purely about the important and the powerful people of the country celebrating Xerxes as the most important and the most powerful in the known world. He throws the biggest party you've ever heard of just so people can tell him he's awesome. And you would think that after six months... His me ego cup would be full, but it's not. He just needs a little bit more. Verse 5. And when these days, the 180, the sixth months were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Let's just, the court of his garden could hold the entire city. He's got money. There were white cotton curtains and violent hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Six months just weren't enough. He needs seven more days. But this time, everyone's invited. The important people, the powerful people, and the not-so-important people, and the not-so-powerful people. It's like if the president threw a party for himself for six months and invited all the military generals and the politicians and the powerful CEOs of all the oil companies. And then after six months of ego-driven debauchery, decided he needed seven more days just to fill his ego cup. And he invites the entire District of Columbia to come over to the White House to just tell him how awesome he is while they sit on the front lawn. And he goes, hi, I'm amazing. How are you? 
And Xerxes invites everyone over just to see how awesome he is and how beautiful his house is so they can gaze at his exquisite and expensive furniture, so they can marvel at how incredible he drinks out of gold. What kind of man is this God? And he just wants them to see how great his life is and how tasty his wine can be. And it's all ego. Come to my house. See how powerful I am. See how rich I am. It even said, look at all of my pomp. Look how pompous of a jerk I am and tell me I'm great. Look at me and look at my glory. Xerxes displays his own glory. And that's not enough. He then demands his own glory. Xerxes demands his own glory. While Xerxes is in his palace throwing a party, apparently for all the men, getting drunk out of their mind, his queen, Vashti, uh, is is now in the slightly less large palace throwing a party for all of the women, Uh, you know, because they they can't mingle. Uh, Guys over there, girls over there. Uh, But in verse 10, Xerxes does something that is just not surprising at this point. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring King Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Xerxes hadn't just, you know, hadn't had enough of people telling him how awesome and how great he was. He hadn't shown enough of just how much he thought of himself. So Xerxes, in a drunken state, that's what Mary with mine, wine means in the Bible, demands that his eunuchs uh, bring his queen to this party full of men who, by the way, are also drunk and probably being stupid. Men don't need booze to be stupid, but men plus booze always equals stupid, and he just wants to parade her around in front of all of these guys so they can gawk it all at her, so they can go, oh, look how hot your wife is. Now, all the text says is this, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. Um, there's some conjecture, and I'm just going to be honest, it's conjecture, but I think, I think it fits. It's a conjecture about what this means because we don't fully know. But what we do know is Xerxes wanting to display her beauty to all the guys in the kingdom because he wants everyone to see how great he is to have gotten such a beautiful wife. And it's almost certain that they, uh, these guys definitely didn't have any noble intentions in calling her to the party. Uh, while nothing specific is noted in the context uh, Outside of the reference to her beauty, uh, it indicates that her attendance at the feast was uh, not in the best and most tasteful ideas. One rabbinic tradition goes so far as to interpret this as the king's instruction for her to wear only her crown. In other words, show up in your gold crown and be naked in front of all of these other guys so they can see just how beautiful you are because you're mine and they can look at you but they don't get to touch you. Xerxes demands his glory. And then Xerxes is denied his glory. You go, girl. Vashti says, no, I'm not going to do it. She refuses to come. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. 
she denies her husband the king, and in my honest opinion, rightfully so. But that's one of the interesting things about the book of Esther that we've just kind of got to like sit with over the next six weeks. As often throughout the story of Esther, Esther just purely recounts what happens. It just tells you the facts and the details. And it doesn't always weigh in on the morality. It just says this is what happened. And that, that happens a lot in the Bible, but it happens a lot in Esther. Where the, the, the word of God just rightly tells us what happened and it doesn't even weigh in on the morality. Now, that does not mean that God is approving of everything that's going on. What it does mean is that it's at the end of the Bible. It's at the end of the Old Testament. What the assumption is, you've read through the rest of the Old Testament, all the way up through the law, through the life of David, through Abraham, yada, da, 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 da. You had to wonder where the dinosaurs went with Noah. And then you get to Esther, and your mind and your soul has been morally formed by what God's law said was good and right and perfect, so that when you read Esther, you go, that's wrong. That it, the, the author didn't need to tell you that Xerxes is a jerk. The author didn't need to tell you that there was no reason for Vashti to show up, that that was morally wrong and evil, because you would have been reading up to that point, and your moral and your mind would have been shaped that when you read that, you go, Gross. Wrong, evil, wicked. And that's going to happen as we journey through Esther. And so we have to be good students of the Bible as we read this book, as we read the whole book, letting our mind and our morals be shaped by what God says is good and what God says is wrong. But Vashti denies Xerxes' glory. And what happens? What happens when any drunk guy is told no? (laughs) He gets angry. He gets angry which is all of us to a degree. We all want to look good. We all uh, want people to think well of us. We, we all want the glory to some degree for ourselves. And then when it's denied us, we get angry. When we're disrespected for what we think is wrongfully, this little voice pipes up in our soul. How dare they? What is wrong with them? Do they not know who I am? And it happens to Xerxes. He's denied his glory, and in his anger, he gives in to fear, and he makes a decree, and he decrees his glory. Starting in verse 13, Xerxes holds a council of his advisors, and in verse 15, we read, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Which just sounds like, what can I do to her? What, what can I do to her and not feel bad about? Like, what does the law say that I can do? because she's not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. And as his advisors uh, guide him on what to do, they, they play on his fear. Uh, that because Vashti denied the king, then all of a sudden, overnight, there's going to be this kingdom-wide uprising of women against their men, of wives denying their husbands, and oh my gosh, there's going to be lions and tigers and bears, oh my, in your kingdom, what are you going to do? And in anger and fear, he makes a decision that's going to lead to destruction, which I think we can maybe not identify with a six-month, one-week-long party, but I think we can identify with anger and fear leading us to places where we make bad choices. And that's what he does. Verse 19, if it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed, changed taken back. 
that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who's better than she. So when the decree is made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, ego, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Let's just demand respect because you were rightfully disrespected. Just make a law that says they can never do that again. And you'll never have to be angry again, king. Because you shouldn't be angry because you're the king of everything that we know. So just make a law. It'll make a rightful divorce. and Get a new queen who will like you better. And uh, why not just while you're at it, you know, demand that every woman who's married to a man can never do what Vashti did to you ever again in your kingdom. And this advice, verse 21, pleased the king. Of course, of course it did. And the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. And he sent letters to all the royal provinces so that every province in its own script and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Esther chapter 1. Xerxes throws this god-awful party to just display his own glory. And then he demands that his queen come up and just flaunt what was never meant to be flaunted. And when he's denied, he makes a decree that, oh, well, I was disrespected, so let me divorce you and then make it a law so that no woman would ever disrespect a man again, especially not me. And this pursuit of Xerxes' self-glory doesn't just stop at a party, doesn't just stop at an after-party. It doesn't stop till destruction is laid waste in his kingdom. Like, just think about the world where men are just set free to do whatever they want and never be told no. Think about a world where anyone is set free, man or woman, to do whatever they want, whenever they want, and never be told no. Like, that ends poorly for everybody. That's why, as Americans, we love checks and balances. There's restrictions on power, because no one's wise enough, no one's good enough, no one should have the ability to do what they want, when they want, because they want. Because that pursuit of self-glory ends in destruction for those beneath them and around them. And that's what the king decrees. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. That's Proverbs 14, verse 12. There's a way that seems right to humanity, but in its end is death. When we pursue our own glory, we're pursuing our own death. That's what, that's what that means. When we're pursuing us in our glory, in our kingdom, we're not actually finding life. We're chasing death veiled as some sense of pleasure. And when Xerxes, with all his power and all his might, pursued his own glory, he was pursuing his death and the impending death and destruction of those that he led. Like that was not a good decree for anyone underneath him. And it wasn't a good decree for him. 
It wasn't good for anyone. And just blindly demanding respect and blindly handing out power that doesn't end well for people. But Justin, I'm not Xerxes. I'm not this narcissistic, egomaniac Persian king with nothing better to do with his life. No, you're not. And I I don't think you are. However, left as masters and kings of our own little kingdoms, we all become Xerxes. Left unchecked to be kings and queens of our own little kingdoms, or queendoms, however you say that, I don't know. We all turn into Xerxes. Maybe not ruling 127 provinces in the known world, but what we do rule over looking a lot more like him than we would ever want to think was possible or imagine. Displaying our own glory. Demanding it. And when being denied it, decreeing it. I ain't done yet. There's a way that seems right to man that ends in death. And as the story unfolds, this time... uh, The same type of power is what brings the potential death of thousands of people. This blind handover of power that Xerxes does in his kingdom, we're going to see it do later to a guy named Haman. And when Haman gets this kind of power, he almost wipes out the people of God in the entire country. And here's the scary thing, is that Xerxes Xerxes shows in fullness what left outside of the grace of God is inside every single one of us that he lets on full display the depravity and the sickness and the sin that just festers in all of us outside of Jesus. That in Genesis 3, this lie happened, this temptation that brought death and destruction into the human experience was this, you can be just like God. And that's the same thing that gets all of us on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays and Sundays that you can become like him. And in a moment where our first parents, Adam and Eve, pursued their own glory, let me be God. Death and destruction entered the picture. And over and over again, when we've pursued our own glory, at the end of the road, we've, all we've found is death. All we've found is destruction. Like we know that path doesn't go to a good place, but there's something still enticing about it. But there's hope. There's hope even in the darkness of Esther. There's hope even in the darkness of sometimes our own souls. There's hope even in the world of Xerxes the king. I don't know if you've noticed it, but God wasn't mentioned anywhere in the first chapter. And uh, if you've read Esther, you might have this weird sense of, I didn't see God's name show up anywhere. It's because it doesn't. While you don't find the name of God anywhere in the big book, what you do find are two things. One, you find a kingdom driven by an egomaniac narcissist who's the most powerful person in the known world. All throughout the book, he's here. And two, you find the hand of God guiding the events of this king's kingdom. That the most powerful man in the world, all of a sudden what you find is the God of the universe is guiding him and making choices and making moves that he doesn't even know that are happening. Esther tells us that there's hope when all feels dark. 
Esther tells us the story that there's hope even when God feels absent. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you feel like your world's dark. Maybe you feel like God is absent. Maybe was there and isn't right now. Maybe just never. That everything that could go wrong is, that evil is winning, that the good is nowhere to be seen, and God just feels like he isn't here, and that if he is, there's no way he cares. But Esther tells us there's hope, even when God feels absent. Why? Because as the story of Esther unfolds, we see that God uses good what man meant for evil. God uses for good what even men like Xerxes meant for evil. Xerxes is evil. He is. Like, there's no getting around it. He's not a hero. The story of Esther, he's just this kind of drunken, narcissistic pushover, but he's still a drunken, narcissistic pushover who's evil. And even though Xerxes is evil and he does evil things, God, in the story of Esther and in the story of our lives, is still good. God is still good. Our circumstances, our choices, other people's circumstances, other people's choices do not determine or change God's character. Xerxes can be evil and God can still be good. And those things are both true. Xerxes can be the king of Persia, but God's the king of everything. Xerxes might have the most glorious palace and the most golden of cups and the most purple of drapes and the most splendor and glory in the known world. But first, if we're honest, Xerxes is dead. Like he's not here. His glory is gone. He got beat. Second, he's not the king of Persia. And even when he was, he was a puppet. God is glorious. God is eternal. God is alive. God is the king of everything, which includes Persia and included Xerxes. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Throughout the story of Esther, we see that God can, God does, use men, even evil wicked men like Xerxes and evil wicked men like Haman, And their intent for evil, for good, because their heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns and moves it wherever he wants. In Esther, God somehow uses the pride and the anger and the fear and the narcissism and Vashti's denial and dismissal from the throne to set in motion the rescue of God's people. Xerxes is evil, but God is working good. Even though you don't see it in chapter one, the story's not over. God's not done yet. God used Xerxes' pursuit of self-glory that brought destruction to people to set in motion God's display of his own glory and the rescue of God's people. When all felt dark, God wasn't absent. When hope felt lost, he was working a rescue. So we don't have to lose heart. We don't have to lose hope, even in the darkest of moments. Because God didn't just use evil for good in the story of Esther. God's used evil for good in the story of Jesus. In Esther, God used evil for good to save just a small part of God's people in one part of the world at one point in time. And hundreds of years later, Jesus shows up on the scene. And God uses the evil of men for the greatest good in the world to rescue all of God's people for all of time in all of the world. 
God used the wrongful murder of Jesus to rescue the world. The Jesus, the perfect son of God, who was executed at the hands of Romans by the decrees of the Jews, and by his death, we're forgiven. By his death, we are healed. Because Jesus died, we don't have to. Because of the evil that Jesus endured and that they meant for Jesus, God worked the greatest good in all of eternity. What man meant for evil, God uses for good. So what path are you on? Xerxes was on a path and was paving a path that leads to destruction and left to our own pursuits outside of the grace of God and the goodness of Jesus Christ. We run down the same path. Maybe not running countries in the known world, but we run the same road and it leads to the same place. Death and destruction. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is death and outside of the grace of God and the goodness of Jesus we're all little kings trying to build our own little kingdoms for our own little slice of glory that doesn't last Xerxes is dead his glory is gone in Matthew 7 Jesus said for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it many. It's like Jesus read Proverbs, that there's a way that seems right to man and it ends in death. But in verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard. The way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So what path are you on? Whose glory are you pursuing? Yours? A friend's? companies or Jesus's wide is the path that leads to pursuing your own glory and its end is death because there's a way that seems right to us but narrow is the way that leads to life and few find it and that path is a person in John 14 Jesus said I'm the way I'm the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through He's the way. He's the path. He's the path to life. That it's narrow. It's only through him. But it's open. I was riding my bike a a few weeks ago after one of the big storms down on Grant's Trail. And I was being dumb and riding in the dark with a flashlight that had gone out. And I got on the greenway leading up to Grant's Trail and you're off the highway and it's just covered in trees and There's no street lights. There's no stars getting through it. It's darkness all around. And I got about a mile into the trail. And it just kept getting darker and darker and darker. And I, like, kept hitting my little flashlight to try to hope that it would work. I just needed to change the batteries. And all of a sudden, I realized there's just these things on the road. And I slowed down a little bit, and I start dodging branches and dodging branches And then all of a sudden, from me to the first road, there's this entire tree just down. And I slam on the brakes and like kind of skid to a stop and realize I might have almost broke every bone in my body because I thought it was a good idea to ride at 4.30 in the morning with a flashlight that didn't work in the dark. There's a way that seemed right to Justin, but its end was gonna be at least the ER. 
how Kelsey was going to find me back there. It's not the point. But sometimes life feels like that. And when I change the batteries, I haven't done it again. But when I change the batteries, all of a sudden the path became clear. He's the light of the world. And sometimes we feel like life is dodging things until there's this barricade that says stop and turn around or be stopped and turned around. And in the grace of God, if you're on that dark path and your light's gone out and you begin to dodge those branches, this is the moment where God's saying, turn around. That the barricade's coming, the tree that's blocking the road is coming, the end of death is coming, like destruction's on the way. But you can come home. That I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And when you come back to the Father, you find them all. That there's a way that leads to destruction that's right to man. But there's a way that leads to life. So what path are you on? Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we thank you that you are the light of the world. That you were destroyed in the flesh, cut down so that we don't have to be. God, we thank you that there's books like Esther that feel dark, that feel run by evil people, that where life doesn't look like it always is going to work out. Because that's how life can be a lot of the times. God, I don't know where every man and woman is in this room today. But you do. And so I just ask, in the name of Jesus, that you would bring us all back to the narrow path. Because we all, like sheep, go astray. And God, I ask by the grace of your word and the power of your spirit, that even for those of us that maybe are a little wayward, or those of us that are a lot wayward, would come back to find the path that leads to life. Even though it's narrow, even though it's hard, in the end, we find what our hearts want for and what our hearts long for. We pray in Jesus' name.